And our reading this morning is Matthew 23, verses 1 through 12. Uh, Let us give our, our careful attention to the reading of God's word. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees, sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear. They lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Oh, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher. You are all brothers, and call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So it's been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. The place to begin this morning uh, is, is just with the statement that we all have a little bit of a Pharisee inside of us. We all have a little Pharisee that lives inside of us, a little Pharisee that, that lives inside of our heart. And that's important to put out there because today's passage is all about the spirit of the Pharisees. These were the religious leaders, the authorities of Jesus' day. They were um, the, 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 the Bible teachers, the Bible scholars, the Bible experts of the time. You wouldn't call them the villains in the story. I think that would be inappropriate. They're certainly the opponents of, of Jesus. But they represent this legalistic spirit that is alive and kicking today. It's always been alive and kicking, as I'll argue. Uh, What we'll see in this passage is that on the one hand, Jesus is exposing the rot of this legalistic spirit. He's exposing the decay in the leadership of Israel, but he's not just deconstructing. He's not just doing the work of demolition. He's also laying this foundation that you and I are to to build our lives upon, and we are to be concerned about as as we build up the church together. As God has called all of us to be part of these building blocks of the church that he is creating. We have here a diagnostic tool uh, from the Lord Jesus where we can see whether or not our churches are healthy and then what it looks like to be a faithful community. So this is a passage that speaks specifically, powerfully, to leadership in Christ's church. That's really important. Israel has a problem of leadership that Jesus is addressing, but Matthew identifies from the beginning that Jesus is talking at this point to the crowds and to the disciples. It's a message for all of us. And and here's a really important point. Any work of discernment that doesn't begin by looking at our own hearts is inherently sub-Christian. Any act of discernment uh, that doesn't first start with with a full-on look at the deepest, darkest parts of our own hearts is inherently sub-Christian. Does not take Jesus. You do not need the Holy Spirit to point your finger at someone else and see their flaws. But maybe the humility of looking inward first requires something more. It's a message for us because I believe with all my heart that we have that little Pharisee living inside of us. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are in active recovery of being a Pharisee. We all have some kind of legal spirit. We all have some kind of law-centered spirit that manifests itself in so many ways. It can just be a critical eye, always looking over the shoulder at other people's problems. It can be measuring ourselves and our own righteousness, not by God's word, right, but, but through other people. That's how we assess ourselves and our own success. Uh, it can be in the, the, the anger and the frustration, the resentment 
that happens when we see grace given to someone that we are saying that person does not deserve it and that hurts and it makes me frustrated and angry. How about all of us, I think, in this room wrestling with Jesus' summary of the kingdom in our passage where he says, listen, the end of the day, the greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Who in their natural heart wants to be part of that kind of kingdom? I don't. But that's what Jesus says he's coming to bring, and it's what he's bringing. And this spirit, this this legal spirit, is something that you and I undoubtedly, we struggle and we wrestle with. Uh, It's what our religious neighbors wrestle with. It's what Christians wrestle with. It's what our irreligious, worldly neighbors wrestle with. It's the language of pride and self-righteousness. And that's what Jesus is dismantling. He's dismantling that that spirit of pride and self-righteousness in order to provide a better way through himself and through the gospel that he's bringing. So we will wrestle with the reality that we live in a a law-centered world, and Jesus has come to create a grace-centered church, and it's disruptive. Uh, Jesus says earlier in Matthew, you are the light of the world. If, if, If one of you turned on a flashlight right now in this room, barely anyone would notice, right? And yet if you turn that same flashlight on in the middle of the forest, in the middle of the night, it would be disorienting. And that's the kind of light that Jesus is alluding to. That's the disruptive reality of of being a people who are committed to the work that God is doing, which is so gracious, uh, and we are recipients of that grace. That's that's how disruptive it is to our world of judgment and the law. And by being confronted with this reality, my prayer and hope this morning is that we would grow in our love for Jesus, knowing more in our heart of hearts what he has provided, and also it it would provide a better way for us to faithfully engage the world that we have been called to engage in, to live in. So just two points this morning. We'll look at the law-centered world. Uh, That's an analysis of the Pharisees, who they are. And then we'll see the grace-centered church that Jesus is bringing. All right, so how does this passage help us to see the law-centered world? Jesus lays out four failures of the Pharisees related to the legal mindset. These are four aspects of, of a legalism that I know all of us are familiar with. All of us at some point in our lives can identify with the failures that Jesus is highlighting. And so the first one, we know this one, they don't practice what they preach. Verse 1, Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees, sit on Moses' seat, and so do and observe whatever they tell you. Sure, but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. This is something I'm guessing all of us are familiar with. with. The history of politics is politicians heavily legislating for things that they don't keep uh, consistent in their own personal lives. It's parenting as the best example. Even if you're not a parent, you at least were a kid at one time. Maybe you are a kid right now. Uh, Do what I say, not what I do, defines so much of parenting, right? It begins with little Johnny. Share that toy truck with your friends, and yet Johnny's mom and dad have a different opinion of property rights for themselves. As kids get older, it gets more explicit, and we often demand our adolescents and teenagers, just do what I say. Don't worry about what I'm doing. Now, what makes that problematic? And it is problematic. It lacks humility. Now, gospel-shaped parenting must at times include, you just need to do what I say. That's good. That's fine. That's what parents are supposed to do. It's that gospel-shaped parenting needs to be saturated with repentance and humility Because we are communicating to our children that we stand next to them as sinners that don't do what we're supposed to do. 
that we do the things that we're not supposed to do and we don't do the things that we're supposed to do. But we stand next to our kids, not apart from our kids, because the goal isn't outwardly conforming children. If that's all we care about, we just joined up with the Pharisees. That's what they did. We want inwardly transformed children who love Jesus because they know their, their need of him. Now let's bring this back to the Pharisees. They sit on the chair of Moses. That's a good thing. That means they preach God's word. They preach God's law, but Jesus says they do it in a false way. And so how would we uh, describe the false way that they are sitting on Moses' chair? First of all, they rely upon a law that they do not and ultimately they cannot keep. This is what the Apostle Paul passionately argues against in the, in the early parts of the book of Romans. You come to Romans 3, you have the great summary of what the gospel, the need the gospel meets. All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And so Romans chapter 1, uh, the Gentile pagan world, they don't have God's Bible, they don't have the word, and so they have the law written on their hearts, they don't do it. The Jewish people have the law, they want to teach everybody else the law, but they don't do what they teach. Paul says they don't teach themselves. They love the law. They boast in the law. They respect the law. They don't do it. They don't do it. And so to live a life of reliance on a law that you can't keep and that you are giving to everybody else you know, that inherently is hypocritical. The other way uh, is that there is no mercy with the law of the Pharisees. Now think about the very design of, of, of the architecture of, of how God communicates himself in the Old Testament. Think of the Ark of the Covenant. Remember the Ark of the Covenant? You have this box. Inside the box, you have the Ten Commandments. Uh, on top of this box, you had what's called the mercy seat, and you had two angels, two cherubims, uh, fashioned in gold with their arms overstretched, pointing toward each other, if that makes sense. Now, what was the mercy seat for? You would sprinkle the blood of the spotless sacrificial lamb on that lid. So think about that symbolism right off the, from the beginning. Even in the Old Testament, the law of God is always covered with blood. The law was always covered with blood. The hope of Israel could never be in the keeping of the law. It was always in the shedding of blood. The problem with the Pharisees is they were all about God's commandments, but they had little interest in investigating and exploring and getting to the bottom of God's covenant, his unfailing love to his people. So Jesus goes to the crowds and he says, if they're proclaiming God's law, sure, do what they say, but don't, don't follow them. Don't be like them. We know this, right? We, we can relate to this failure. Second failure of the Pharisees. They are unwilling to help where help is needed. Verse 4, one of the most scathing rebukes of Jesus in all of the Gospels. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. A lot of heavy burdens. It's normally understood the law of Moses contains 613 laws. On top of the 613 laws, uh, rabbis throughout the centuries erected fences, rabbinical laws. And these fences were intended to keep people from crossing the line of the law. So you don't break the law if you, if you have a fence that keeps you from even getting close. My go-to example, maybe I've said this one before, my go-to example of this that is still kept today uh, by observant Jews who follow kosher laws is they don't eat cheeseburgers. If you were to get a lamb shawarma on the streets of Tel Aviv, there would be no garlic yogurt sauce on that lamb shawarma. Why? Deuteronomy 14.21 says, You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. How do we make sure we're not violating that law? Don't even put dairy and meat on the same plate. And you keep kosher. It's a good example. 613 laws, innumerable fence-like protective laws. It's like a stack of books right of a librarian who just like slams them on the patron and says, go ahead and read, go ahead and do. Now, what's the problem here? 
It's not that the Pharisees are unwilling to follow the burdensome rules themselves. They are scrupulous. That's one of their problems. They ignore the forest for the trees. They go for the individual uh, ticky-tacky laws and ignore the heart of the law. The problem is not that they don't keep those burdensome laws. So what is the problem? They refuse to help those who collapsed under their rules. This anger of Jesus, and no doubt you can sense a little anger coming through here, can't you? This anger reveals the tender heart of our Savior. Jesus hates a legalism that imposes laws and regulations this way and that, but is unwilling to help the lawbreaker. If the summary of the law is love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbors yourself, what we saw last week, um, you can see how this legal spirit fails in keeping with the heart of God's law because it merely points the finger indifferently and says, you figure it out. And don't come back until you can figure it out. They unload heavy burdens on the people and do nothing to help the people carry that load. It's a complete lack of self-awareness of your own sin. It's a complete lack of awareness of your own need. Um, John Calvin is really good on this passage, and it's a little bit wordy, so I'll, I'll, uh, I'll kind of translate it for, for you. This is basically what he says on this passage. He says, leaders who truly fear God sincerely and earnestly, they desire to bring their people to obey God, of course. But here's the thing. They are most severe toward themselves than toward others because they are so aware of their weakness, and therefore they kindly forgive the weakness in others. Anytime we cast judgment on someone with absolutely no interest or willingness to help them bear that burden, we are saying, just like the Pharisees, figure it out. And we're in danger of exhibiting that same heart. Third failure, Jesus points out. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. It's all for public show. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They want to sit in all the places of honor at the feasts and in the synagogues. Think of Matthew 6. When you pray, go pray in secret uh, because of the hypocrites who stand on the street corners. and They stand in the synagogues and they just want to be seen. And there's such a simple transaction that takes place. I want people to look at me and say that I'm holy. So the minute someone says, man, that guy's holy, transaction's done. You got exactly what you paid for. Your reward is in full. They want somebody to say, that guy is seriously holy. And that's what they get. They've won. That's the same thing here. They make their phylacteries broad. Uh, Phylacteries are leather boxes that are worn on headbands. In some Orthodox Jewish communities, they still wear phylacteries. And Jesus says they're broad. You can see the phylactery turning the corner before the person turns the corner. This big old leather box contains little tiny scrolls of Exodus and Deuteronomy. A very literal interpretation when Moses says, bind the law on your foreheads. And Jesus says, listen, they're huge, they're broad. Every observant Jewish man and boy would wear a prayer shawl, would wear a, a garment that had prayer fringes. And Jesus says, man, those are long. Problem isn't the fringes. Jesus wore a prayer shawl with fringes. It's a beautiful picture. If you remember the woman with the bleeding issue who spent all of her money trying to make herself better and she finds Jesus and she says, this is my last resort. She casts herself on Jesus and what does she grab? His fringe. By the way, what a picture of prayer that is. What is prayer? It's grabbing the prayer fringes of Jesus. It's a beautiful picture. The problem isn't the prayer shawl. The problem is they've made them extra long. So people would say, that guy is prayerful. Furthermore, they wanted to sit in the place of honor at feasts to have the best seats in the synagogue. The chief seats were on the platform facing the congregation. That's where they want to sit. They want to be recognized. Fourth failure. It's all about honor. It's all about the titles. They go out to see and mostly be seen and be called great ones. They want the designations. They want the respect. 
They don't practice what they preach. They're unwilling to help those in need. They do pious things to be seen as pious. They crave honor and respect and important titles. And so what is the end result of these four failures? A fundamental misunderstanding of what ministry is. Jeremiah 23, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. The Pharisees want the people attending to them. The Lord says through Jeremiah, it's the other way around. The shepherds attend to the people. It's also a fundamental failure and misunderstanding of what it means to be God's people. People whose identity from beginning to end is grounded in the sovereign mercy of God. We know this, right? Deuteronomy 7 is a good example. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth, you are not the mightiest. You are not the biggest. You are not the most impressive. You are the smallest. You are literally slaves in Egypt. But it's because the Lord loves you and keeps his promises. So Jesus sees self-concerned, self-consumed shepherds. He sees an arrogance and pride that has no, has forgotten all about God's mercy and grace because they have so little to give to others. And my contention is that these aren't historically isolated problems. By and large, the application goes far outside this ancient group of, of Pharisees, right? Do modern day Christian communities reflect any of these failures Jesus identifies? And all God's people said, sure. You bet. Do we find these same characteristics in other religious communities? Absolutely. And so we are always having to do the work of reading this passage, not with our heads shaking, but, but, but a little bit confronted, a lot of bit confronted. We have to identify and lament these failures to embody and proclaim the kingdom that Jesus is ushering in. To be sensitive to the ways that we can act in the exact same way as the Pharisees so that we can repent of them. But the legal spirit is reflected of the broad, in the broader society as well. Because we live in a world of righteous fervor and pride and judgment and condemnation. The moral relativism that I was warned about as a kid, that was basically my entire youth group experience, was being told about the moral relativism that, that uh, there, there is no objective truth, that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I think that's kind of true, but here's the interesting twist. It expresses itself in the only language human beings speak which is the language of law and righteousness. All of these characteristics of the Pharisees are not exclusive to Christian or religious communions, but it's part of our human DNA after the fall. Uh, Tim Keller this past week said something so relevant to, to this point here. He said, there are two seemingly contradictory currents that mark our society. Uh, first of all, there's a denunciation of claims to absolute truth. Secondly, there is a fanaticism in which one position or group is absolutely right, Nothing is ambiguous, and divergent views must be destroyed. And friends, God has called us to minister the gospel of his son into this world that is so devoid of grace. So how does Jesus do it? This is the world that we inhabit. Technology and rapidly evolving media and media types make this the, the water that we swim in. The Pharisee spirit undoubtedly is the spirit of this age, and I would argue it's the spirit of every age. To be seen as righteous through my social media posts, digital phylacteries. We all know that we don't go on social media to persuade because we know studies show there is no persuasion on social media. And so we want to be seen as righteous. There's naturally lots of righteous anger when everybody thinks that they're righteous and everybody's angry. There's room for condemnation when it's far easier to keep my enemy away from me and judge them as my enemy uh, than to serve and love them. 
And friends, this is where we see Jesus disrupt our world as he forms a grace-centered community. Disrupted because Pharisee is what we all speak. That's the first language that we learn. Pharisee is what Adam spoke when he was in the garden. And God said, Adam, what did you do? And he said, not only the woman did it, but the woman you gave me did it. Double blame shifting. Double words of righteousness. And all of that language into, our, in, into his posterity and into his children. We speak this language too. We speak Pharisee when our hearts are so critical toward others, reflecting this gospel amnesia, forgetting what God has done for us and just how much we need the gospel and how deep and persistent our own sinfulness runs. We speak Pharisee when we feel we have the need to control people and control every situation, totally forgetting our dependence on God. We speak Pharisee when we need the approval to come from others. We always live before the gaze of others' people's eyes. We are always people-pleasing, and we have forgotten that we are already approved by God. We speak Pharisee in the way that we, we criticize others so freely, that we speak about others in ways that so often we would never speak to them in their face in a way that denies uh, the reality of the God in, whom, in whose image they are made. And it's from this impossible situation, and it seems like an impossible situation, that Jesus forms his church and he does not give up on the church that he's forming. Where does a grace-centered church begin? In him. I included the quote from the writer Hannah Anderson in the beginning of the bulletin, and, and she's speaking to pride, which is the same, same thing as righteousness. She says, the trouble, of course, is that it's our very pride that keeps us from being healed of our pride. And so before we can even begin to answer his call to come to him, Jesus comes to us because we could never sufficiently humble ourselves. Jesus humbles himself, and by so doing, he comes both as the model and the means of our humility. And so we can't miss that Jesus, in describing the Pharisee spirit, is revealing his better life-giving spirit. Jesus is the best teacher because he's always teaching himself, which is the best subject. And so verses 11 and 12, he paints a picture of this is me. The greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. What are you even talking about? Just watch what I'll do. These are the upside-down values of the kingdom of God. Everything that the kingdoms of this world lust for, everything that we lust for, those are fulfilled in Jesus perfectly. All of the honor, all of the glory, all of the appropriate power that we should have, all of the recognition, affirmation, acceptance, approval, love, forgiveness, and healing that we are looking for is found in Jesus and in his love for us and in his love for you. The Pharisees sit on Moses' seat telling everyone what to do, but they don't do it. One better than Moses is here. Jesus will uphold God's law. Jesus will celebrate God's law. Jesus will feast on God's law, and he will fulfill it perfectly for himself and for you and for me. The religious leaders tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear. They lay them on people's shoulders, and Jesus says, Come to me if you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, which is easy, and my burdens are light. The righteousness that you can produce in your own strength, that will crush you, and it will crush everyone in your life. That righteousness that you can produce is like filthy rags, deserving of the full weight of God's wrath. And so Jesus gives us, uh, gives us his better righteousness when we look to him. The Pharisee spirit is to crush others under the weight of our expectations and judgment. And Jesus came, he took our burdens, and was crushed. 
Pharisee spirit is to look good so that people will think good of us. They'll think good of our reputations. And Jesus took his reputation and he punted it. He didn't care what the religious leaders thought as he sat and he dined with those whose society said, you don't sit and break bread with those people. Jesus kicked away his reputation when he was hung naked, shamed on a cross. Jesus loves his own all the way down. The Pharisee spirit wants the best seats in the house, or at least the seat that says, I am important. The seat that says, yeah, this feels good to me. Jesus takes off his outer garment, puts a towel around his waist, grabs a bucket of water, and says, take your shoes off, I'm washing your feet. That's the groundwork. That's the foundation of his people. That is the church that he is calling, that he is building. He's telling the crowds and disciples, not just, yeah, this is broken leadership, but he's saying, but check out what I'm doing. Jesus addresses the Pharisee that lives inside all of us, not with try harder next time, not with do better. That's the Pharisee talk. He addresses the Pharisee inside all of us with the grace of repentance and the gift of faith to rest and receive in him and his work. So as we wrap up here this morning, like I'm insisting, teenagers, I'm insisting to you, like this is a word for you. You know this already. You know to be a human is to be a judge. To be a human is to be a judge. Uh, moms and dads, as we evaluate our own success through the, through the lens of other people, uh, it's, it's good for employees and employers. It's a word for grandparents. It's a word for young and for old. Uh, to be a people who don't just preach to others what we don't practice, but to preach humility to bear burdens with one another, to know that we are seen by God as his sons and daughters, fully approved, that we are totally vindicated at the cross of Christ, to know that there is no seat of honor better than where you and I right now are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. What other seat are we looking for? The most countercultural thing that we can do in 2021 is the exact same countercultural things Christians were doing in 121. And that is to offer the world a foreign word of grace, speaking a heavenly language to this place, that there is forgiveness found in Christ. So would God reveal to us the Pharisee spirit that lives in all of us? Because it's not harmless. Uh, it results in, in the bitterness and the anger and the resentment and the insecurity that we also, we know what that tastes like too. Uh, we live in a tumultuous time. We live in a chaotic time. Uh, we live in a, in, a, in a wicked time, which means now more than ever, a world that is in need of people who are committed to the way of Jesus, which means a people of hope because Jesus reigns, a people who forgive because we are the forgiven ones, a people who love because we are so infinitely loved, and a people who joyfully serve because our servant king, for the joy set before him, serves us, even to the point of enduring to the cross. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, would you uh, take this, this word, Lord, and, and apply it deep into our hearts. Um, the Holy Spirit, you would, you would seal this to us, not uh, that we would be a people who are merely faced with conviction, uh, but, a, but, but a conviction that, that turns our hearts back to Jesus. Uh, we have to do the hard work of, of looking inward. We have to do that, that Christian work of always beginning with ourselves, always knowing judgment begins in the household of God and even taking that further. Judgment begins with me. Judgment begins in my heart. And there would we see the vindication that we have in Jesus. 
There would we see that what we bring to the world uh, is, is just that, that famous quote, uh, we are just beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. We have nothing grasped of our own, in our own hands of anything of worth and value. But we are beloved sons and beloved daughters. Those whose identities are firm and established in the work that you have done, Lord Jesus. So shape us according to that identity. Shape us according uh, to the better kingdom that, that you have ushered in, that you continue to build. That one day, uh, with hope and expectation, we are out of this tumultuous world, this chaotic world, this wicked world. And we are in your kingdom in full. Lord, would you give us longing for that great day? And would our longing, would that hope, that sure expectation uh, begin to uh, infiltrate into our lives, even here right now, where you've called us to be? Lord, would you do that work that only you can do? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.